New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. In Tibetan China, the rainbow body is a phenomenon that has been noted for centuries, including the modern era. It's a spontaneous disappearance of the physical body at death. How does this relate to the resurrection of Jesus? Are there eyewitnesses who can attest to the authenticity of this occurrence? Our guest today explores this manifestation of spiritual realization in a wide-ranging study of the transformation of the material body into a body of light. Today we'll be exploring the meaning of death, bodily dissolution, and resurrection with our guest, Father Francis Tiso. Father Francis Tiso holds a Master of Divinity degree from Harvard University and a doctorate from Columbia University and Union Theological Seminary where his specialization was in Buddhist studies. He was associate director of the Secretariat for Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops from 2004 to 2009, where he served as liaison to Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, the Sikhs, and traditional religions, as well as the Reformed Confessions. He is the author of Liberation in One Lifetime, and Rainbow Body and Resurrection, Spiritual Attainment, the Dissolution of the Material Body, and the Case of Kempo A. Cho. Join us for the next hour as we explore the fascinating phenomenon of the manifestation of the body of light after death with our guest, Father Francis Tiso. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Father Tiso, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. So I know our listeners are curious, the rainbow body. Uh, just just what is the rainbow body? Well, just as you said, of course, it refers to the dissolution of the material body, which is considered to be uh, the most significant attainment of the Dzogchen schools in the Bonpo and Nyingma traditions of Tibet. Uh, and it is a kind of uh, manifestation. You can have a body of light, you can have a subtle body in many of the tantric traditions, Hindu and Buddhist. And, of course, we talk about it in Christianity as well. 
uh, and then also Iranian Sufism is famous for this. But here, it's applied to an actual physical manifestation. Uh, and there's a, a great deal to suggest that something really does happen. So uh, we've been wanting to study this for quite a while. In fact, this is a 15-year uh, project, which has come to conclusion with this book. But I don't think the study is over. It's barely begun. So what was your motivation to start the research? Where did it begin for you? I had not done a lot of work on Dzogchen uh, before uh, 1999, except for the fact that I had attended retreats with Chogyal uh, Namkai uh, Norbu in Italy and had, uh, in that sense, received Dzogchen teachings. So just to be really clear, mm-hmm. when you say Dzogchen, we're talking about a form of Tibetan Buddhism. Exactly. Okay. And, uh, but not only Buddhism, and that's part of the discussion, because it's also in the Bunpo tradition in Tibet, which is considered to be non-Buddhist, all right? and So the, that preceded Buddhism. Uh, yes. Uh, it's, More it's, of a village kind of... Uh, well, it was really the imperial uh, priestly cult, and it had elements of Central Asian shamanism, elements of non-Himalayan culture as well, and then also the the traditional relationship between town and village and dynasty and local deities, mountain gods, uh, and so forth, the, the forces of nature. So it's a, a, already a very rich religion. Some researchers believe that Bonpo may have already incorporated some Buddhist teachings and practices before uh, the introduction of Indian Buddhism into Tibet. So this is a whole area of research that has some fuzzy edges that uh, we can hardly address today. And and just to get the lineage, so when Mm. you say Indian Buddhism, because the Buddha was born in India, and then so just so people to start to say, okay, I I think of this mostly as Tibet, but it actually traveled from India then into Tibet. Yeah, we're going to have to do a lot of traveling in this conversation. Oh, goody. You know, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, as I said, narratives that walk, because uh, I have right here on our desk uh, uh, this afternoon a book by one of our, really the dean of Central Asian Studies here in America, Christopher Beckwith, who denies that the Buddha was born in India. And he claims that Shakya Muni doesn't mean the sage of the clan of the Shakyas, who presumably lived on the borderland between Tibet, excuse me, between Nepal and India, but he says it really means Saka Muni, and Saka is the the old word for the Scythians. All right, so one of the Central Asian empires of the fourth, fifth centuries before Christ. So this brings it to yeah. the the what the Euphrates and the Tigris and yeah. and, and central yeah. what we call uh, you know Iraq now or or Syria or or those places back and then. even Crimea and and and, and, and the, what is now north of the Black Sea was also a Scythian realm known to the Greeks. So this blows away a lot of <laughs> <laughs> a lot of our preconceptions. And uh, I'm pretty open to what uh, Beckwith is saying. We're not dealing with your average scholar when he challenges us with this, these ideas. Right. But what the beauty of this uh, research, which has just been published, is that it does confirm my intuition that contact between East and West, 
between the multiple civilizations from the Mediterranean world through Central Asia, the ancient Middle East, India, Tibet, China, that that exchange has been going on in great waves over a very long period of time and can even be documented. And he makes a, a heroic attempt to document it. And we, this book. we call that the Silk Road. But exactly. going back to my question, what commissioned you to actually mm. start this research? And it's a fair question. Brother David Steindelrost, who I believe has been on this program, yes. right? Yes, several uh, times. Uh, Brother David is my main spiritual teacher going back to the 1960s. And uh, back in the late 90s, knowing that I knew some Tibetan and had done some study, uh, thought that it would be of great value if I traveled to Tibet and interviewed eyewitnesses to the dissolution of the body of Kenpo Acha, this Eastern Tibetan monk, spiritual teacher, who had recently passed away in, 19, in the summer of 1998. Brother David heard about this from a friend of his who lives in Zurich in Switzerland, who was very close to a doctor from that part of Tibet, Dr. Chisegong, whose, whose uh, picture is in the book. And so I immediately went off to Zurich, uh, and uh, Brother David's friend very kindly provided some uh, seed money for the, for the research, and off I went to Tibet to find my way around. Uh, and Dr. Chitsegyang was also very helpful in giving us the geography of this uh, situation. So I did a preliminary study, and then I, uh, the following year I actually went to the village where the Kenpo had lived and died. And so the motivation really comes from Brother David's concern to find possible correlations between the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and the body, bodily dissolution that is said to occur in at least certain of the Tibetan lineages, okay? And we usually associate it with Dzogchen or the great perfection tradition of spiritual practice in, in the Himalayas. So um, uh, that that motivation was you know, to find well again the question of uh, metaphysics on the one hand and a physics on the other right? right can there can we bridge the gap between physics and metaphysics between spirituality and paranormal phenomena that occur uh, and can we verify that they even do occur there's a huge challenge but brother david was in particular very concerned about the lack of um, plausibility in the claim that the resurrection of Jesus was not bodily, but was a subjective experience of the first disciples of Jesus. After all, so in can, other words, it was like a, yeah. a, a metaphor, so to speak. A or metaphor, or, or you know, people for some reason inexplicably were filled with joy in spite of the fact that Jesus didn't get out of the tomb. You know, it it just seems so implausible, and yet a great deal of modern biblical scholarship tends to assume that that's what happened. And so Brother David, in a certain sense, raised the plausibility question. Why would someone uh, go to their death confessing faith in the risen Christ when it was just a subjective experience? When, after all, we all have subjective experiences, right? This was something more powerful, more persuasive, uh, and more uh, enduring. So it would be like to go to death uh, 
void of despair, so to speak. Uh, well, as void. you know, the early Christians were martyred, okay? I mean, yes. the, the apostles, the witnesses to Jesus' resurrection were given a choice, you know, stop believing in this nonsense or die. You right. Know? And, and for generations— And it gave them hope exactly. then to believe in the resurrected Christ so mm -hmm. that they could martyr themselves. Is that what you're saying? They, that, they, that they accepted martyrdom rather than changing their belief. It was a really pretty, pretty intense experience. Because you put your body on the line saying that I really believe, uh, and I really, and in the case of the apostles, I did encounter the risen Christ. You know? right. uh, so the, um, the witness value of a personal experience uh, was very, very strong and could not plausibly or uh, credibly be reduced to a subjective experience of uh, joy in spite of loss. Right. You know. Right. Uh, so anyway, so Brother David. The other thing is that Brother David uh, has been increasingly persuaded over the years of the research on the Shroud of Turin, that the Shroud is indeed the burial cloth of Jesus, and that the massive scientific research that has been done on the Shroud would tend to support the, again, plausibly, that this is the burial cloth of Jesus. Uh, my own simple explanation of this is, as an artist, as a painter myself, and a very amateur painter at that, but when I look at the shroud, yes, when I look at the shroud, I see an image that has no style. We'll talk more about uh -huh. that in detail in just one moment. I'm here with Father Francis Tiso, and he's the author of Rainbow Body and Resurrection, Spiritual Attainment, the Dissolution of the Material Body, in the case for Kempo Achu. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, francistiso.com, and he spells his name F-R-A-N-C-I-S-T-I-S-O.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Father Francis Tiso, and we're talking about the rainbow body and the resurrection of Jesus, a combination of these two. Um, so you were just, we, Father Tiso, you were just talking about how your mentor and, and friend and uh, brother David Steindelrast uh, has commissioned you to, to go and do this research, and you've traveled to Tibet. And uh, you were just starting to mention something about 
the resurrection of Jesus and this cloth called the Shroud of Turin. And what exactly is that cloth that has been so um, looked at uh, in so many ways to see if it's authentic? Going back to 1898, when the first large plate professional photographs were made of this cloth, which shows in a very faint outline the body of a man who has been crucified, front and back in a burial position. All right, so what we have here is a burial cloth that was folded at the top of the head, all right, so that it's uh, solid at the top of the head, and then it comes down in the front and comes down behind. Uh, so the body is, you might imagine, a U-shaped cloth, right, around the body going from the front and then around to the back. And it shows the complete body, uh, which was completely covered by this cloth. In some mysterious way, the image of that body was imprinted on the cloth. Careful scientific research, going back to that first set of photographs, and then proceeding with all kinds of technological advances down through the past hundred and well, 120 years. Uh, of the cloth itself. Well, of the cloth itself, have shown a great many extremely unusual uh, characteristics that uh, tend to make some of us believe that this really was the burial cloth of Jesus. For one thing, uh, let me mention the famous carbon-14 test, which seems to have indicated that the cloth could not have been older than the 13th century. But then, when people examine more carefully where they cut the piece of cloth to test in the carbon-14 uh, experiment, it turns out that that part of the cloth was where the cloth had been most handled by people who held the cloth aloft to show to crowds of devotees down through the centuries. So the contamination of those parts of the cloth by sweat and and, and grease from people's hands was particularly dense. So it's no wonder they came up with a, a mistaken date. We know, for example, that this particular kind of herringbone linen weave was not made in the 13th century. There's the pollen testing, which showed pollen from all sorts of places, tracing it back to the Middle East. There is the uh, fact that the cloth itself would never have been used as a burial shroud. That is such a precious weave of linen that it would only have been used for the temple in Jerusalem. It would have been used for altar cloths or vestments. And some people are actually willing to <laughs> go out on a limb and say maybe that cloth was chosen specifically by disciples of Jesus who knew something more than we do, <laughs> that they wanted to make a statement about who they believed Jesus was, even in the hour of his death, which is astonishing. But there are many other iconographical features that scholars have studied, which tend to suggest that, uh, indeed, the cloth we call the shroud was known to the Byzantines and to other Christian churches in the ancient Middle East. Because there's some writings or yes, texts? Yes, there, that... there are writings and testimonies and, and even a, a famous uh, uh, ransom episode uh, when the Byzantine emperor spent a huge sum of gold to buy it from the people in Edessa 
and bring it to the imperial chapel on the island of Pharos, and I think the 840s. And that uh, event was commemorated by coinage uh, that represented the face of the shroud on Byzantine gold coins. Wow. So that was way before the 13th century. Exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. and so now, now going back to the rainbow body, now we're going to jump over to the east and mm-hmm. to uh, Tibet uh, and, and southern China. Uh, mm-hmm. So what's, wh- how does that correlate with the rainbow body? Okay, now we're actually getting to something that I haven't spoken orally about in several days, but I think it's extremely important. You've asked just the right question. If the shroud is in some way a product of a burst of energy from the body of Jesus in the 36 hours after his death, because the the deformation of the fibers of the linen cloth suggests that there was some kind of intense heat or energy that was emitted to cause that image on on the cloth, we start to think light. We start to think energy. We start to think something we don't know about yet, scientifically, produced an image. When we hear discussions of the light body in yogic literature, in India, in China, in Tibet, in other parts of Asia, and we hear about a light body, we begin to wonder, did they too discover methods for enhancing the natural photoluminescence of the human body in such a way as to produce post-mortem phenomena that uh, really demand our attention? Okay, and so there's the connection. Does the light body, does the rainbow body, does the body of light or the subtle body in tantric practice in the East correspond to what was manifested in the resurrection of Jesus uh, in those three uh, momentous days in the tomb, or or 36 hours is more precise, in the tomb? And so that's where the research takes off. Because we want to find out, you know, does this really happen? How did they find out how to do it? All right, and uh, and then move on from there to many many other questions. Now I understand with the rainbow body, uh, there isn't an artifact, so to speak, like the shroud of Turin. It, so you you have to rely on eyewitness accounts, right. uh, so to speak. So did you talk to this? This in the in the particular person that you went to to research was um, uh, Kempo Acho, and he was said to have dissolved into this body of light mm-hmm. and fully dissolved his material body That's fully correct. dissolved, and and there were eyewitnesses. So were you able to talk? And this happened in 1998. Did exactly. you say? So did you talk to eyewitnesses? Yes. Uh, In fact, the cloth that covered his body after his death is preserved and is now in a shrine in the town where this happened. There is no marking on the cloth of any kind. The light that was manifested and seen by the eyewitnesses took a number of forms. There were oddly shaped rainbows over the cabin where the Kenpo lived and died. There was a burst of white light 
that was seen at a great distance, high in the sky. The rainbows continued. In fact, they began before he died, and they continued for the eight days after he died. All right, so while those rainbows and other light phenomena were manifesting, the body was seen to diminish under the cloth that covered it. So you could kind of see the outline exactly. of the body. Yeah. The other thing is, why did they cover the body with the cloth and not dispose of the body, as is the normal custom? Because in the moments after his final breath, the face of the Kenpo changed. It became luminous, pink like that of a young child, and all the wrinkles disappeared. At that point, they realized that as they put it, signs were about to manifest. They sent runners to the Dharma brother of the Kenpo, who was a, another abbot about, I would guess, 50 miles away, to get his advice. He sent back word, cover the body, do not disturb it, All right, continue your prayers and your devotions for eight days, and then you may remove the cloth, which they did. And they found nothing not even the famous hair and nails that are sometimes reported for these cases. So, a very interesting and very remarkable, complete dissolution of the body. There is a debate as to whether this was a dissolution down to atoms or whether it was a dissolution down to the particles of light. There's a famous theoretical debate in uh, in Tibet about this kind of thing. Uh, I won't go into that for our purposes, but now, in any case, there was a dissolution. So, Father Tiso, it, it, it's it's hard to predict this because often, from what I understand of your writings, uh, that the the kinds of monks or lamas or practitioners that uh, dissolve into rainbow body they often they're 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 often like obscure they're they're not well known i mean like uh like we'd say oh well obviously maybe the dalai lama is going to dissolve into light but that is not going to be the case maybe again we have to move our hearts and minds into the culture that we're studying and so uh, in the case of uh, a great Buddhist teacher who has many disciples, there is an expectation that in life and in death, that master, because he or she is a bodhisattva, is going to have a responsibility uh, toward the practice and the devotion of those disciples. So typically during life, that takes the form of doing ceremonies, blessings, uh, initiations, teachings, organizing a monastery, and many, many other works of kindness and, and charity. After death, it often takes the form of leaving behind the relics of the body that remain after cremation. And cremation is done uh, with a considerable number of formalities and so forth and very carefully designed so that there will be relics. Uh, and very often, rather strange relics appear after cremation, which are then pres carefully preserved and become objects of devotion uh, for the people. So these are also like passed out to other lamas and they'll say, well, I have the yes. the bone, the the finger bone of the 
some famous llama or, you know, the, these different yes. relics are passed Absolutely. out. Absolutely. In fact, there's a little container that some Tibetans carry with them mm-hmm. called a gao in which the relics are enshrined right. on one's own person. Right. So this, this cultural reality is very strongly felt. Uh, so when a person uh, decides to follow the Dzogchen path, very often that person realizes that to do this, one needs absolute focus and, and, and in a certain sense, plays the fool, becomes a marginal person, becomes, uh, you know, might, even, might not even dress as a yogi, mm-hmm. but might live as an ordinary layperson, a farmer or a herdsman, but regularly practicing simple forms of meditation, right? So we'll talk more about that in a moment. I'm here with Father... Francis Tiso, and he's the author of Rainbow Body and Resurrection, Spiritual Attainment, the Dissolution of the Material Body, and the Case of Kimpo Achu. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Father Francis Tiso, and we're talking about resurrection and the dissolution also of the material body. And uh, so we were just talking about how in, in the case of the rainbow body, often it's someone who is more obscure than, than like the well-known lamas, but these are practitioners who are, are of a high order, even though they they might be just simple farmers in some ways. Mm-hmm. Or they, they might be acting as. Acting as. <laughs> Precisely right. to protect the secrecy and the, and the intensity of their practice. But in the case of uh, Kenpo Acha, we have an additional unusual factor. Not only is this a man who was ordained in both Enigma and the Gelukpa schools, two very different approaches to Tibetan Buddhism, was a highly regarded disciple of the great Dujom Rinpoche, one of the great uh, Nyingma masters of the 20th century. But he also had disciples. He had disciples male and female, lay and monastic, and we met many of these people. Some of them are indeed marginal and humble people of the village. Others, of course, are, are prominent people. So he broke some of the rules, you might say, that usually accompany this kind of a manifestation. And so it's particularly striking what he was able to accomplish. Even His Holiness the Dalai Lama wrote to him and honored him with a letter of profound respect well before he died and uh, commented on this particular case in a, in a number of public talks after the uh, death and dissolution of the body. So it, it is a kind of an unusual case. Uh, and so it gives us a lot to work on. We were fortunate to be able to interview three or four eyewitnesses on-site and two eyewitnesses off-site okay, in India, two young monks who had uh, left the area and gone to study in India. 
Then but we they also, were there at the dissolution. But they were there at the yes. dissolution, but in the year 2000. So we're th within two years of the event, we were able to interview uh, three, to f three or four eyewitnesses and then an additional two eyewitnesses the following year in 2001. Now, tell me, what is the significance of um, an oral, of the oral tradition of... of describing this and you know i mean we, we come from this scientific mm -hmm. bent and we want to be able to say unlike the shroud of turin which has gone through all sorts of scientific uh, uh exposure the in this case we're relying on the oral transmission of what happened so can you say something about that and the sure. importance of that it takes a great deal of uh attention to listen to people in a foreign language and then attempt to translate what they're saying. And uh, so we taped the interviews and we tried to listen carefully more than once in the company of people who speak Tibetan better than I do to pick up some of the nuances. And I asked a lot of my Tibetan friends to help me with this to see whether, for example, the eyewitnesses were following a script we're simply telling us the story as it ought to have happened for hagiographical reasons, you know, to honor this master, this saint. And we asked a lot of questions about that. Uh, and there are some indications that at least one of the people interviewed, one of the eyewitnesses, seemed more to be reciting a script than expressing a life-changing experience. So we gave a great deal of thought to this problem. But when, uh, as in any kind of a, let's say, a court case, we take oral testimony, right? And we try mm -hmm. to see uh, who's telling the truth and who is uh, maybe prevaricating of a little bit, you know? Right. So I try to address that. It would have been ideal to f do follow-up interviews over a period of years. And in fact, uh, I was unable to do that because of a lack of grant money. But another uh, interesting person, a, a Nyingma Lama, did follow-up interviews after our interviews and published that. In did 2000. he tape them also? I don't know, but he uh, did write about them. And yeah. in 2006, he published in Tibetan his findings, which confirmed our findings. Okay, So at least we have an, a, you know, a, something of a control there. Uh, as in any kind of anthropological research, you're dealing with people. And it's a very human experience. It's participant-observer kind of anthropology. And then we turn to the texts and other uh, sources to try to confirm or clarify our doubts. We're talking about uh, an inclination towards clarity, but we're not talking about certainty. All right? Okay. Uh, you have to be real careful with that. So tell me, Father T, so... Um, so what what are the implications of let's say verifying this rainbow body this dissolution of the body of uh Kempoachu to uh the resurrection of Jesus what what's the implication how are they connected then in in some way what's your conclusion what have you taken from this or let's let's do it very quickly about the resurrection of Jesus. Okay. All right. Jesus is crucified in extreme physical pain in an extremely violent form of ex execution. 
He is buried in the shroud, and uh, within an hour or two of death, right, the body is severely wounded and damaged. Some kind of embalming was done. It is There's some evidence on the shroud for flowers and other kinds of uh, ceremonial uh, pr- procedures that were done in haste. There are other things that can be said. But in any case, we have Jesus in the tomb probably for about 36 hours before a mysterious explosion of energy occurs, leaving a remarkable trace on the cloth. In the case of rainbow body manifestations, solitude, isolation, not touching the body, not interfering with a process that seems to suggest that there is consciousness present in the body that can be disturbed by handling, right, gives us a little bit of contrast between what is claimed about Jesus and what is claimed for the rainbow so body. So there are difference. some differences. Yeah. Also, of course, there is n- there has never been any evidence of a burst of energy in any rainbow body manifestation that we've been able to uh, examine, okay, or re- look up in the records, right? There are different kinds of rainbow body that are cataloged in the tradition, but none of them talk about a burst yes. of energy, that kind of thing. But there is some kind of energy involved because light emerges. Yes. Uh, the, the burst of white light, the different colored and different shaped rainbows, things like that. So light is involved. What we may have discovered was a yogic intensification of what is called bioluminescence, the natural luminescence of a living being that perhaps can be enhanced by certain kinds of meditation practices. So we found a different kind of uh, experience. Now, let's take it one step further. What is a spiritual body, which is mentioned in the New Testament? What is it when we're going to resurrect at the end of time? The New Testament not only claims that Jesus rises from the dead, but that all will rise from the dead. All right, how does that happen? And Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, goes into a great deal of discussion about a notion of a spiritual body, right? The soma pneumaticos. And that gives us a hint that the early Christians believed that they participated in the resurrection of Jesus through their faith and through uh, the sacraments of Eucharist and baptism, but that also at the end of time, all Christians and non-Christians will rise, be judged, and enter into eternal life in one way or another, all right? The, the wicked will be judged and sent you know, to hell and all of that. So this, uh, these early beliefs indicate that they too understood that resurrection was part of the human destiny. And they got that, as we know, from uh, already some trends in Judaism at the time of Jesus that believed in the resurrection of the body and some ideas that came from Zoroastrianism where they also believed that in order to enjoy the delights of heaven, it wasn't enough to have an immortal soul. You had to also have a resurrected body. So in, in the Old Testament, aren't there instances of some sort of resurrection? Was it, do I remember Moses uh, 
was resurrected or Ezekiel or some, are there any, oh. Yeah, oh, tell me, are there What is instant? it, Ezekiel 37, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, or 33, the, the dry bones uh, vision, all right? So there you have the valley of the dry bones and the spirit goes forth and uh, replaces flesh on the bones of, of the dead and brings back to life Israel that has lost its way and been defeated and crushed. But of course, this is a metaphor for something. But it certainly, even though it's a metaphor, it's such a powerful metaphor that it, it shaped the imagination of, uh, of, of the Jewish people uh, towards believing that the nation would rise again and that at the end of time, there would be a resurrection of the just. So going back also to what you said earlier about the spiritual body, mm. so there's there's a material body, and then there's this other right. source of energy, the spiritual body. Say something more about the spiritual body. I think Paul in that chapter in Corinthians is uh, articulating an understanding that the material body itself will be transformed. You know, in an in uh, uh, that, in the blink of an eye. I was singing. Right? I was going to say twinkling Lich, right? of an twinkling eye. Twinkling of an eye, right? Yeah. At the last trumpet, you know that there will be this transformation of the body, so that what you are is, yes, is what you will always be, but it will be in a transfigured form. All right? Does that mean that the spiritual body is within us? Even in our material body, yes. So that that it it coexists exactly, and uh, and in fact, it is nurtured by frequent participation in the liturgical sacraments. At least throughout, uh, from the earliest uh, witnesses in Christianity, like Ignatius of Antioch, at the beginning of the second century, all the way through the the patristic and and medieval period, this is repeated. Uh, endless times. Our Syriac Christian friends in particular emphasize that the Spirit remains in the relics of the saints to work miracles. And this was believed, of course, also by Western Christians. So, so in, in, in the going—we're going to talk maybe in a moment about the Silk Road and about mm, mm. that whole— um, transference of all of these concepts back and forth east-west, we also can say that um, in many of the, let's say, the Buddhist practice or some of the more contemplative practices, you know, to practice meditation and those sorts of things would also enhance this spiritual body, so to speak. I want to tell our listeners that I'm here with Father Francis Tiso, and he's the author of Rainbow Body and Resurrection, Spiritual Attainment, The Dissolution of the Material Body, and The Case of Kempo Achu. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Father Francis Tiso. And Father Francis, uh, tell me, when we talk about the spiritual body, when we talk about um, what's the the contemplative practices that are maybe more, we think of more in the Eastern practices, I'm reminded of the Catholic uh, master, I will call him, uh, Thomas Merton. Mm-hmm. And he seemed to embody both the East and the West so so beautifully in his writings and in his practices. Can you say something about his work? Yes, Thomas Merton, of course, was one of the great bridge builders between East and West. And uh, I think there's like a cottage industry of studies of Thomas Merton because he's so fascinating and he remains uh, a point of reference for really tens of thousands, perhaps even millions of people today. He was one of the first to build a dialogue with Sufis, with Zen masters, and with other spiritual teachers, not to mention all the political figures and and people involved in the peace movement and civil rights. Uh, But he built a dialogue with these people through hundreds and hundreds of letters uh, and then occasional meetings with these folks. We have his Asian journal, which involves, at the very end of his life, very intense meetings with some of the Tibetan Lamas, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, Chatral Rinpoche, who just passed away, uh, Kalu Rinpoche, Kantru Rinpoche, some of the the greats of the 1960s uh, who had just come out of Tibet, and he met with them and and encountered them on a level of very deep spiritual exchange. Uh, Chatral Rinpoche referred to him as a Rangjung Sangye, which means a self-arisen Buddha. Uh, which is really a very generous title for a great Tibetan Lama to give to a Western Christian monk. But as we discover in our research about uh, the Syro-Oriental Christians in Asia, Merton prepared himself for that encounter through a lifetime of meditation and prayer. Merton would, in addition to the liturgy and the singing of the psalms, which he loved in Latin, uh, Gregorian chant, uh, and all of the traditions of the Trappist order, he also immersed himself daily in at least two hours of deep contemplative prayer beyond thoughts, uh, beyond words. And he writes about that in some of his letters. In fact, the most explicit description of this kind of meditation is found in a series of letters to a Sufi in Pakistan, where he opens his heart uh, in great detail about what he was doing. But that kind of contemplative prayer was known in our own Christian monasteries. But these Syriac Christians also knew about it and talked about such things as, what do you do when you're singing the psalm and you're chanting for hours in choir in the silence of the desert And all of a sudden, your mind and heart are seized by the presence of God. uh, And the psalms stop. And you simply can't sing anymore because you've been seized by the Spirit. What do you do? You know, is it okay or is it a mistake, right? (laughs) And they go into this. And, of course, uh, some of the people that uh, I've been reporting on in my book said, it's not only okay, it's what you want. Ah, ah, say rest in it, yes, <laughs> rest, rest in, in it, it. To, yes. To, to be seized in that way uh, is, is a sign that you're uh, developing as you should, as you should. 
And as the uh, Tibetans would say, it would be the settling of the waters so that the waters are not the metaphor of, of uh, they're not clouded up, but they right. become clear. And uh, so I, you know, going back to an earlier part of our conversation about the Silk Road, I think that there's something that I believe I, I heard you say in a, a public talk. There, there are some words that appear in both the uh, in the East and the West. One is. Gesar, I think, is one. Oh, uh, oh yes. And, and can you talk about that? Because mm-hmm. I found that fascinating. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's one of the narratives that walked, isn't it? The story of Gesar, which is the story of a heroic Tibetan king from legendary times who supposedly rose from being a rather ne'er-do-well youth to becoming a world conqueror and a great spiritual figure as well, uh, this legend, which is chanted in the form of voluminous uh, epic poetry, uh, we were present for one of these uh, uh, recitations in eastern Tibet while I was doing my research, and the Gesar epic uh, seems to be the quintessential Central Asian and Tibetan story, and yet the name Gesar comes from Kaiser or Caesar. All right, It comes from the legend's that were passed from west to east about the great emperor of the west, all right, the Caesars, all right, the emperor, the emperor of Rome, all right, or as he was called in Central Asia, Rum, right. When we talk about Rumi, Rumi, what does Rumi mean? You know, the great Sufi poet. It means someone who came from the territory of the Byzantine Empire. <laughs> it's so fascinating. All of these connections that mm-hmm. show. Was it true? Did did Peter travel, the disciple of Jesus, did he travel east? No, Peter is believed to have gone from Palestine to Antioch and became the first bishop of the church in Antioch. Then he handed on uh, that responsibility to a successor whose name escapes me, but then after him immediately we have Ignatius of Antioch whose letters have come down to us and are a remarkable testimony to some of the things we're saying here. And then when he went to Rome, and in Rome he was uh, uh, martyred. Remember, on a, uh, he wouldn't be martyred head up. He wanted to be martyred with his head down to show that he was not the Christ. The Christ. Right. Is there any document of who actually traveled to the east? All right, the, the great legend of, of Thomas uh, refers to St. Thomas, uh, the doubter, remember, mm-hmm. uh, who goes east and supposedly evangelizes India. There is a lot of controversy as to whether this was even possible, but uh, that legend uh, is one of the supports for the presence of the Christian church in India. Remember that that church to this present day, uses the Aramaic or Syriac language in the liturgy, right? And had its bishops nominated by the Syro-Oriental patriarch in Baghdad for centuries. But we don't know the status of that church for the first two or three centuries of Christianity, so it's hard to say St. Thomas. Or They also talk about St. Bartholomew going to Persia, and there were several other apostles who were thought to have evangelized uh, Western Asia in various ways. Remember, there were uh, sea routes and land routes well established by the time of the Roman Empire. 
Uh, and there's all kinds of wonderful things that could be told about that. Remember Alexander's presence in India, uh, the, the Hellenistic kingdoms in what is now Afghanistan and Pakistan. There's a lot of connections. And those connections had their ups and downs, but they yes. were never fully broken. So tell me, uh, Father T, so how, what is your takeaway of all of this research? How has it changed you? Well, for one thing, I think it's helped me understand a great deal about the way interreligious dialogue bears fruit in intercultural dialogue. Cultures meet and transform one another. There are these profound exchanges, the, the narratives that walk and carry with them profound teachings, but in the form of a story that can be shared among high-level practitioners, maybe in a monastery or a philosophical school or in the palace of a king. But then there are the same kinds of stories that can be shared in the marketplace by merchants and soldiers and travelers and, and, and in, around the family table. So that by telling a good story, we also hand on spiritual knowledge and wisdom. And I think I've learned a great deal about that by doing this research. And the other thing cannot be emphasized enough is the importance of contemplative practice in our daily lives. If possible, we should all spend some time in a monastery somewhere. Right? I think that that's really important to learn to meditate, to learn to concentrate the mind, to learn to find inner peace, to learn that kind of discipline that you can only learn you know, in a certain kind of environment. And how fortunate I was to spend time with Brother David, for example, for two years in his hermitage in Connecticut, and then to spend 12 years in a hermitage in Italy and really work on this, to work on the, the inner life. Uh, and to learn so much from some of our great contemplatives East and West in our own time. Thomas Keating, the great Trappist abbot, but also uh, people like uh, Chokinima Rinpoche, uh, who's been a great friend for many years, and uh, Namkai Norbu Rinpoche, whose works have greatly enriched my research, and to study with him and to uh, take notes at his uh, presentations, and then to meditate on these teachings and try to find my way among them. Uh, so uh, this is very important. I would so greatly uh, love to see that kind of wisdom being shared today in such a time of uh, confusion and violence. Uh, there's a great deal that can be shared. And I'll tell you uh, that in my book also I'm talking about the Quran and the transmission of a Quranic story into the Tibetan world, which includes, of course, elements of the life of Jesus as the Muslims understood him. So that there was this exchange, there were narratives that walk, and perhaps if we appreciated that more, we might learn to make peace. I want to thank you so much, Father Tiso, for being with us today. Hmm. I've been speaking with Father Francis Tiso. He's the author of Rainbow Body and Resurrection, Spiritual Attainment, The Dissolution of the Material Body, and the Case of Kempo Acho. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, francistiso.com. And he spells his name F-R-A-N-C-I-S-T-I-S-O.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3579. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.